Hello, welcome to Typewriter Talks. This podcast features interviews with writers, poets, and other bookish folks. My name is Maureen McDowell, and I'm the founder and executive director of Keep St. Pete Lit, which is a literary arts organization based in St. Petersburg, Florida. On Typewriter Talks, we discuss all kinds of writerly topics, hoping to show you that there is not one right way to be a writer. Today, we are happy to welcome Nicole Carone. Nicole's nonfiction has appeared in numerous trade publications and regional and literary magazines. She works with novelists and memorists as a developmental and copy editor, and her freelance copywriting has won two regional American Advertising Federation Silver Addy Awards. Nicole lives in St. Petersburg and teaches at Ringling College of Art and Design, where she runs the first year writing program. Nicole spent her spring 2019 sabbatical conducting research on the history of St. Petersburg, founding and early years from 1888 to 1920 for the multi-generational family saga she has been working on for the past several years. Welcome, Nicole. Hi, Maureen. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you for doing this. You were one of our interviews um, during Typewriter Talks video video era. <laughs> I remember COVID. it well. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's always cool. Like I've I've interviewed some people again and it, you know, we're, we're always growing and you're in a different um, phase as a writer, but also in a different space with your uh, generational saga book that I can't wait to read. I can't wait to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about it. So, well, it's been through a few iterations over the last decade. I'm embarrassed to say I've been working on it that long. Um, I recently went to the Historical Novel Society Conference in San Antonio. So at the beginning of June. And, you know, that was really, it was, I don't want to say transformative. That's too big a word, but it was revealing to me to think about the ways that I could change my saga to fit really the, the, the things that I am particularly interested in. I had been so invested for several years into breaking this up into three separate books, focusing on three separate generations. And right before the conference, I finished reading a true sodbuster of a novel, a thousand page novel by John O'Hara called From the Terrace. So it was published in the 1950s. It's made into a movie with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. And, I, and it took me forever to read it, but I loved it. And I thought, this is, this is what my book should look like. It's not, it's too, it's almost too daunting to do three instead of one. How come I'm not doing this as one big, fat, juicy narrative? So then I went to the conference and I went to several sessions, talked to several published authors who had written dual, dual timeline narratives. And as I went to the sessions and talked to people, I realized, you know, this is really, this is really where my book should be. Is I started this book with a very strong female protagonist, and she keeps coming back. And I was working on the early parts, you know, this, the parts that happened in the 1880s and the 1890s. And I, I shifted point of views in different chapters. And I kept thinking, well, 
you know, the, the kid from New York is my narrator. No, his sister is my narrator. And I, I realized at this conference, no, my narrator is the person who's been the narrator all along. I just wasn't listening to her. So when I came back, I started doing a little writing more from her point of view and then trying to figure out, okay, where can I drop this in? And then I got discouraged because I couldn't figure out where to drop it in. And I decided I'm just going to keep writing that part and I'll figure it out at the end. How fascinating like that you've been sitting and working and, you know, being in this book for so long, (laughs) but but that's not a bad thing because I mean, it takes, it's the time takes what it takes, but that it's actually now you're seeing that it's a totally different like perspective than what you were actually writing, which (laughs) took you that long to get to that place. So I, I know, really, but it, it took no, so long. Not a, that's not a bad so thing. I'm just saying like it, she had to like, she had to like speak up and she wasn't ready yeah. yet, I guess. Yeah. You know, it's interesting what you just said a moment ago about things taking the time that they take. I have a quote. I've had this quote on my bulletin board for three years now by a poet, Mary Oliver, and it's things take the time they take. Don't worry. Oh, how funny. (laughs) So when I, when I get super discouraged, I just look at that quote and I say, it's okay. It's all right. Yes. I might be 70 by the time this book is finished, but I'm going to be 70 anyway. So (laughs) that's a good way to look at it. If all goes well. (laughs) Yeah. That's the way to look at it. But also, you know, I mean, you, you teach full time, like you're running the first year writing program. So you write, when do you write on your breaks? Yeah, I write, I write on my breaks and I only teach one day a week. I stack up my schedule so that both my classes meet on the same day. So that right. frees me up some of the other days of the week. I'm a, a morning writer and sometimes in the afternoon, but rarely. So I'm just running out of energy and steam and focus toward the later in the day. So I try to front load as much as possible. I, I, if I have a a wave that comes and it's going really well, I just ride that wave. If there's a day when I, my brain is just, I can't, I'll sit and look at the screen or I'll look at the notepad and nothing's coming. Say, you know what? It's okay. Go do something else. Come back to this. Yeah. But it's the act of showing up. Yeah. And that's, that's the challenge. Just show up day after day after day. So as any writer listening to this knows. Yeah. And it's a relationship. Like you have to show up for your relationship. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to ghost your, you don't want to ghost your book. No. <laughs> I text my book all the time waiting for a response. Oh, it leaves you unread. It leaves you unread. But you, um, when you, you write by hand, correct? From what I remember. I, I do lately. I've been just using my iPad. It's a little bit faster and I've been, I have been feeling kind of the pressure of time and the desire to, you know, finish this, finish this, finish this. So I can just go faster when I'm, when I'm typing, it's not pretty, it's a mess and I have to go back and edit it, but I can, I can power down some serious words in a, you know, in a 20 minute sprint. So Gloria Munoz is a great fan of 20 minute writing sprints. So occasionally we get together and bang some words out and I can I can generally do anywhere from 900 to 1220 minutes wow. and I think that's a good day for me it's a really good day 
That's interesting because I went to uh, the National Speakers Association and they say that you should mix up your, like if you're doing like breakout sessions or like, you know, you do your talk, but then you want to, everybody meets the, every 20 minutes, you need to change up what you're doing. So there's mm. something about the way our brains mm. are wired that we have 20 minute attention spans maybe. And then, then we, need, we, need, we need the novelty. We need something new. Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. That's a lot of words in 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if it's a good day, I'll, I'll stack up two or three of those. So if it's a really good day, I can walk away with 3000 words. Are they all useful? Not always, but if I've, if I've done 3000 words in three 20 minute sprints, then, you know, if I can use 2,200 of them, I'm really happy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, it's funny. Cause I don't type very fast. So I've mentioned before <laughs> on this podcast that I, I, I'm working on like a hybrid book of essays and poetry, but I voice to text because mm-hmm. I type as fast as my brain moves. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I've tried dictation. I've tried to use my commute time on the days that I do go to campus to, to talk through some of my scenes. And I think for me, writing is so tactile. And I probably said yeah. this the last time we talked, you know, the whole thing with the pencils, it's just a way to get very close to the page and feel immersed in the experience of spinning out a story. And I'm, there's so much distance for me from the story when I'm talking into my car speaker, yeah. or even I've tried to do it sitting at my desk and I, my, my mind just stops. I need something in my hand yeah. to get from my brain out onto the page or onto the screen. Well, I talk into my phone. So that's kind of like something tactile that works. <laughs> I like, I also like the, like, if I just pull up somewhere and I'll be like, oh, the idea will come to me and I can just pull my phone out and put it in my notes, but I get yeah, it. Yeah. I write yeah. by hand preferably. And oh. I, I totally understand. So how did this idea for the story come about? Oh my gosh, it's been so long now. Let me think. Um, so originally this started as a detective novel. Okay. And it was my spouse, Jennifer Kilmurray, who had this idea. We were walking on the beach one day, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, I think. And we were out either at Reddington or Madeira. And it was very crowded that day. It was middle of summer. And we saw in the midst of all of the hubbub and activity, really a lot of activity for one of our beaches in the summer, there was a woman lying on an orange swim float and she had on a bright blue bathing suit, a two piece. She was lying face down and she was not moving. And there was all this activity around her. And as we walked past, I thought, God, she looks like she's dead. And Jennifer immediately said, unprompted by me, wow, wouldn't it be crazy if that woman were dead? And we looked at each other and I said, what a great idea for a novel. And mm. I, I wrote that first. I wrote mm, 40, 50,000 words of that over a couple, two, three, four years. And then I stalled out in the middle. And around the time that I stalled out, I went to a writer's residency called Wellstone in Northern California. And it was there through the help of author Ethel Rowan, who also happened to be there at the time working on her novel, The Weight of Him, which has since been published to significant critical acclaim. Um, 
she saw me mapping out my characters one day on the big dining room table and she started asking some questions about them. And I realized, you know what, this really isn't about the dead person on the float and the people who are involved in the investigation. The story is really about the detective doing the investigation and the detective's family. And yeah. once I had stripped away all the stuff with the detective story and then opened up the world of the person who had been the detective, I realized this is a completely different story. Oh my God, there's so, so much more underneath this. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started going with that. And that's when I realized, okay, this keeps going. It starts, you know, the story, the story never starts where you think it starts, right? You yeah. open a novel. The story doesn't start on page one. It started long before the characters got there. It started with their origin stories. So I just started going back and back and back. And that's when I realized, no, the story really starts in the 1880s when this character's great-grandfather comes from New York to what is then the new city of St. Petersburg to become an orange farmer. And then I was off and running. That's so fascinating. Like, (laughs) I mean, if you think about it, if you really unpack that, like the story, like it, like revealed itself to you all based on just walking on the beach and seeing a woman on a float. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. love the imagination. Like, <laughs> I mean, is there anything better than being a writer? I don't think so. You know, I want to point out though, that it's not, you know, I've, I might've, I would have had that if I had been walking by myself, I would have just had that thought keep yeah. and kept walking. But, you know, it took my spouse to say, Hey, what, what if, right. That's the, that's always the, the trigger, right. What if, fill in the blank. Yeah. And so subsequently in bringing these pages to my writers group over the years, there's been a lot of contributions of what if from those people, you know, from Gloria, from Brian Wedlake, Brian Petcash, Paul Wilborn, Eleanor Eichenbaum, you know, they've all contributed to this, this beautiful mess. And I'm so grateful for that because I really don't think that people write in a vacuum, you know, maybe Stephen King does, but I think for, for those of us working at a much, much lower level, we, we need help and support from other writers. And I'm always amazed and grateful at how much they contribute to my work. And how collaborative it is. That's really mm-hmm. wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's um, I think you might be one of the first people that really mentioned the writers group how important it is to have that community some mm. don't feel the need for a writers group mm. i i'm more of a like okay i did it i send it off edit it <laughs> leave me alone otherwise i've tried writers groups and i just like they always want to show up at a specific time and i don't necessarily feel like i'm in the mood for it <laughs> so <laughs> i it's it takes a while to find the right people right it's yeah. like It's like you're a magnet and you're not going to attract and stick with everybody, but the other, the other writer magnets are out there. And when you find them and you all kind of go click, 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 click together, it is tremendous. It's inspiring. I mean, let me give you some statistics, right? So there are six of us in this writer's group, 30% of the people in this writer's group have won the Florida Book Award Gold Medal. That's awesome. (laughs) 
<laughs> so something's going right. Something's going right. <laughs> you know, and 50, 50, 60% of this group have won some type of award for their writing. 100% have been published in some venue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's not, <laughs> this isn't, it's, it's magic, but it's, you know, it's magic that you intentionally create. And do you talk a lot about that with your students about the importance of importance of community? Um, since I don't teach creative writing, I teach you know composition for artists and designers. I talk a lot about how important it is, and they know this from their other from their studio courses as well. Mm -hmm. How important it is to get feedback from other creatives and to collaborate on these projects so that you're not working in a vacuum where what you might produce might not work you know yeah. why why do it over and over and over and get frustrated because it's not working and then turn to the people closest to you who do what you do and yeah. say can you look at this and tell me what you think is this yeah. working for you what would I, you do differently yeah and I do find like with poetry like reading it out loud and kind of seeing how people respond. Like you can kind of feel, well, I can, I can feel like the energy of the room if a, if a poem hits right or not, or, and how it sounds. I have to hear it out, out loud, the musicality of a poem. And mm -hmm. so that is a collaborative experience as well. It's not so condensed as a writer's group, but um, you know, having a, having a poem um, read in front of people really helps for me. So I get it. Well, you're very fortunate because um, I, I know like with the students that we've had in classes with keep saying people, it's their lives have changed mm. that their people, like you bet you met Brian Wedlake through teaching with us. Yeah. And he, he's like that set my whole, he was an actor. It set his whole like life and a farmer, like on a whole <laughs> new trajectory. Cause he met yeah. you. So <laughs> community is, community is very, very important and valuable. And what a gift. So Tell us how your writing process has changed over the years. Hmm. I wish I'd had that question ahead of time so I could have thought about it. <laughs> I like I like uh, I think I think I don't get so irritated with myself as I used to. Yeah. No, I used to when the words wouldn't come right right away, I'd get very frustrated. Mm -hmm. And now I'm okay. And I've been okay for a while with writing something that's sloppy or messy. Cause I think, you know what, it's, I'm going to clean this up later. I just want to generate something now that I can work with because if I don't have anything, <laughs> then I don't have anything. Yeah. But even if it's a mess, I can work with a mess. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. At least there's words on the page. Yeah. So is your story, is your, is your book plotted out or are you a go with the flow type? I'm, I'm a, I'm a combination person. So mm -hmm. I have a pretty detailed outline and I guess you could call it an outline. I mean, everybody outlines differently, right? So it's essentially what I did was when I realized that this was going to be all an all in one and mm -hmm. I needed to combine my current, my 1880s version with my 1990s version, I wrote out a long timeline. And I guess this would be the difference in the process, especially since it's an historical novel. I started with the, the 
years of my original, not my, my narrative, but my, my, my guy from the 1880s, I started with his parents' birthdays. So that was back in the 1840s. And I just put, I just made a long list of every year from about 1848 to present day. And then I went in and I took the chapters out of my my manuscript and I matched a chapter up with the year. So like 1889 has a lot of chapters in it, Mm -hmm. which is also a signal to me that, hey, I need to, I need to move this along a little faster. And then I took my, when I got back from the Historical Novel Society Conference, I took the the 1970s and the 1990s manuscript. I had about 40,000 words there. And I took that and I put it into the timeline, into its specific years. So now I can look at it and I can see where the gaps are. And then I took an old outline of events that I wanted to have happen in what I was then calling book one. And I just plugged them into the years and I wrote maybe four or five sentences for each one. Like this, you know, in 1894, there's the big freeze. This is, and I had actually had a chapter for the big freeze. So I put that there. And then, okay, in 1902, this happens. In 1914, this happens. And then I match them up with historical events that were happening globally or in American history. So, you know, I put down like when the Civil War started. Um, I put down, uh, um, when World War I started, I put down the different points if the stock market was doing something crazy during those years. So I was just trying to peg, does that make sense? I was trying yeah, to yeah, match yeah. up what was happening in my character's world with what was happening out in the world in case I needed a cross-reference and also so that I could think about socio-political historical context how might these events have affected my characters in their day-to-day lives and that was that was significant that got me thinking more globally i guess about how of course they wouldn't be operating in a vacuum they would be even if they didn't get the news in a timely fashion in 1889 they would still be responding to it when they got it yeah, and then you have the gift that keeps on giving that is the state of Florida. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could write for the rest of 40 so, lives. So that's good, you know, as far as an outline goes, that's my idea of an outline. And now I'm, I'm just going back in and I sit down and I'll just grab a year. I'm like, okay, I'm going to write this one. Or if I wake up in the morning and something has, has jolted me, like, oh, yes, I need this event to happen. Then I go and I, I, okay, what year is that? What's happened before it? What's happened after it? Find a place for it, pop it in there. And then there are parts, like the part I wrote the other day that it's like, I, I don't know where to put it yet, but it's okay. You know, that would have stressed four or five years ago, having written a piece that I didn't know where it went, I uh, would have been so frustrated. I'm not worried about it. So you're not necessarily writing it in chronological order. You're just writing. I love that though, because kind of place it in different spots and then kind of tie it together. But yeah. Yeah. And that's the other, I guess that's another thing that's, do you ask what's different about my writing process? That's another thing that's different is that 
you know, six, seven, eight years ago, I had to write chronologically. Otherwise, I felt like I got lost. And now I think I don't really care if I get lost. I'll find my way out of the maze eventually. Yeah. <laughs> or I'll starve to death in here. <laughs> <laughs> but not literally, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> so is that the advice you would tell your younger writer self? Hmm. I would probably tell my younger writer self exactly what Mary Oliver said. Things take the time they take. Don't yeah. worry. Yeah, don't worry. I love don't that. Worry. Yeah. So you already mentioned um, a book that you read recently. Do you have any other favorite, um, favorite authors or poets? Uh, you've mentioned two that you would recommend or that you love. I have been a long, long time fan of Joan Didion. Yeah. And, you know, when she died last year, I was like, oh, no, not Joan Didion. I mean, I, I know that she was elderly and, and not well, but her writing has been so impactful for me. Uh, I'm trying to remember when I read this. It's probably been six or eight months now. Her first novel was called Run River. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, now you could call it an historical novel because it takes place in the, in the first half of the 20th century in Sacramento, which of course is her home territory. And I was so struck by the way she used setting as almost another character. So it really made me think about my setting. And it was after I read that novel that I drew out a map of my character from the 1880s of his homestead in South Pinellas, in, in what is now Big Bayou. Yeah. So I drew out, I took several sheets of paper and taped them together and I drew a map and I put, you know, kind of this, put things like, okay, here's the outdoor kitchen. Here's the house he builds. Here are the oak trees. Here's the orange grove. Now here's the, here's the chicken coop. And here's the road into St. Petersburg. Here's the beach. And it helped me a lot because when I look at the map, I can, I can see it. Yeah. I'm not just seeing it in my imagination. I can, I can look at it and I can, I can see, I can plot the characters moving around the property. Okay. How long would it take to get from this point to that point? Where am I, where would Catherine be if Edward's over here? Okay. And then at the same time, you know, I have 1889 written at the top of the map, but I can also see it in 1975. How would this have changed in a little over 100 years? I love that. It makes it very cinematic, but it's also like, um, it's really important to kind of um, have a map of a sense of place. I took a writing mm. class once with Sabrina Dallavalle, and she's mm. was just mm. talking about like, just map the street that you're on. Or what would be, your, she said, what would be your personal map if you were to draw it? And I drew a picture of a fish and like my family's business is in John's Pass. And then like, I felt like I was like the tail of the fish outside of the family business. And I love that idea of bringing a map in because then you can kind of like really, I, I haven't heard that yet on this podcast to like draw a map of where you're, but you even see that in books, you open it up and you can yeah. see like where Middle Earth is. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love novels that do that. I love novels that 
you open it and what you see is a map of the setting. And then you see a list of characters, almost as though it's a play. That yeah. There's something about that that pulls me into the story even more. So I hope that when this is finished, I'll be able to produce a map that could be reproduced in the in the published copy. So, yeah. I, you, you, I'm sorry, you asked me about who I was reading or who my favorites were, and I got off track with the map, but Joan Didion made me think about the map, so. Love it. No, it's all good. So <laughs> um, the last question before we hear some of your work, and you might've already answered it, what would be your elevator pitch or kind of lightning strike advice for other writers? Lightning strike advice. Uh, uh, what do you mean by lightning strike advice? Can you... Like, what would be like your tagline if you were to have it for other writers? Like, what would be your your one thing that, if you were known for the one piece of advice, not to put any pressure on you? <laughs> <laughs> write hard, write fast, clean it up later. I my brain went to a different place when you said that, but yes, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> How very like passionate. I dig it. Right hard, right. I might regret that when I hear it later. No, but I think it's great. Well, we'll interview you in like another couple years and you might have, (laughs) you might be like, right slow, right clean. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's hear some of your story. Okay. Uh, Let me just, let me tell you a little bit about it before I launch into it, because it is one of these, it's a small piece, it's only about 900 words, and it's a, it's a piece that I don't have a place for yet, and this is first person point of view, and it is my original narrator, the, the person who used to be a detective who is now a very successful commercial real estate broker in Manhattan. And when the story opens, she has come back to St. Petersburg, where she was born and raised, to help save the failing family business and the house that the family thinks has to be sold, the house that her great-grandfather built in 1889. So my, my character's name is Brett Harper, and she's giving a little bit of kind of a... Uh, breaking the fourth wall and talking to the reader if this were uh, or talking to the viewer if this were a cinematic yeah okay ready yeah let's talk about me for a while before we turn to the others in this saga and believe me it's a goddamn saga starting well over 125 years ago but i'm getting ahead of myself again as my grandfather often told me i did I want you to know that no one, I mean no one, knows their way around a real estate deal better than me. Unless you think I sound a little too braggy, like the orange-haired guy who dominates commercial real estate news, lots of things separate me from him, namely that I am a woman in this tougher-than-tigers, rip-your-throat-out industry. I know, I know, you're thinking, oh, Brett, come on now, every business is like that. But really, I mean it. And as usual, it's 20 times harder to be a woman than a man in my line of work. Then why'd you choose it, you might ask. Quit your whining, you might say. Find another occupation. All things my grandfather would have said, oh, he, an original member of the pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap school of thought. 
about now, you're probably thinking my grandfather plays an outsized role in my life, and you'd be right about that too. But I'll get to him and to my grandfather's father, who is really why we are all here. That guy, the first Edward, is the reason why I'm the fastest thinking, definitely the best looking commercial broker in Manhattan today. You see, all I ever wanted to do was work in the Harper family business. From the time I was little, oh hell, probably from the time I was born, the whole family has been about the business. The first Edward, we call him the grand, as in grandfather, great-grandfather, grand landowner, grand council leader, probably a hell of an all-around grand guy, kept piecemealing together parcels of land as soon as he could get his mitts on them. The other settlers had varying degrees of fortitude and endurance. People dropped like flies all the time back in the late 1800s, the early 20th century. Life was freaking tough. Edward the Grand was one of the first people to run water from Bell's Lake, now called Lake Megory, to his property so his family could have the luxury of running water. The others had to haul it from the lake, rely on cisterns and wells, which were usually brackish, so close to the bay. That shit got old fast. Would you drag a couple buckets of water by wagon or pack mule a mile in 90 degree heat and 70% humidity every day? If you had a truck garden and you scrabbled at the earth trying to grow a few lousy vegetables to feed your family and maybe sell to the other households, that precious water you just hauled was going to get used up fast. So you'd better get your corseted butt back in the wagon and go haul some more. That's before you got around to scrubbing the clothes on a washboard in a tin tub, but after you fed your kids, your husband, and the animals. And if you're the man of the house, you're picking oranges by hand, or you're mucking out sheds and barns, or you're standing in the blistering sun in warm bay water up to your knees, hoping like hell you'll catch a fish or two or ten before dinner. So as these folks gradually gave up the life and headed back north to more fertile grounds and abundant fresh water, Edward the Grand snapped up a few acres here, a few acres there, until voila, he owned over a thousand acres of prime South Pinellas land. Most of it was covered with orange trees. That genius got super rich growing oranges and shipping them to points north, especially back to his native New York City. But scraps of land here and there wasn't satisfying. Turns out, Edward the Grand was a restless sort kind of like me, his great-granddaughter. Edward worked his way north into St. Petersburg proper. Other men, other families bought lots around town, so there wasn't much to be had there. But Edward took a look at the couple of miles separating Pinellas Village from the town, and he must have said to himself, one day, this will all be one city. One day, people will live and work all along this old dirt road. So he started buying property along what became Third Street. He built a small bridge over Salt Creek. He built a boatyard. He built a marina. He built a restaurant. A restaurant, like he cooked. No, I don't think so. Someone else did the cooking and managing. Edward just liked to own property and buildings, just like me. He built a warehouse, then another one, a storefront, a strip mall, but they didn't call it that back in the day. He built houses. He built a bait shop a dentist office. He was on a roll. Edward Harper became one of the largest landowners in St. Petersburg. The Mastry family and the Starkey family gave him some friendly competition as they built their own empires. 
but mastery came a bit later and Jay Starkey focused on Pasco County. So the Harpers ruled the city for decades, but not without resentment and pushback from some others. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this book. <laughs> oh, I'm so visual. It's so cool. I love her that, name. That's very raw, by the way. That's that's just been kind of lightly cleaned up. <laughs> I love your language. I love the way that you describe things and your your wording. And it's just so cool. Like knowing you and but then hearing your writing, it's like, ooh, I want to know her more. That's so cool. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this, this, this shift to this person as my overall narrator and folding in parts of the history and the other characters' stories, which will be probably in third person. I'll keep them in third person. And this feels so right to me. And I, yeah, I feel... I love how snazzy, like snappy. She's like snarky and sparky and all the words <laughs> snarky and sparky. yeah I love the way she <laughs> describes herself and like I mean I could just like visualize her I love the name I love the name yeah I've, that, I've had that name since the beginning I have no idea I oh, it just kind of flew out of my mind it just was yeah a little a gift from the writing gods she was ready to be have her story told I think so. She was ready to be born. Well, thank you so much, Nicole, so much for talking with us. And thank you everyone for tuning into this episode of typewriter talks. If you want to know more about keep St. Pete lit, you can go to keep We, I think this will be episode 13. So we have 12 other episodes of wonderful listening that you can listen to and And if you love what you hear, please consider donating to Keep St. Pete Lit to help keep this programming going. Thank you again, Nicole. And everyone, we will be back next week with our next Typewriter Talks. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you so much. Thank you.